be our hearts for Christmas. We had a look at a little bit of that this morning. I did wonder whether um, all I was going to say this evening would be null and void because it would just be repetitive. I mean, even if it is repetitive, it's good to hear it again. But I wonder if you're ready for Christmas. We had to go and do um, some Christmas shopping yesterday. Um, and uh, it was an experience because it was just a trip to a toy shop. And I thought, well, if we go early enough, it would be nice and quiet. No. Within a few minutes, there were just hordes and hordes of people. Panic, not panic buying, but just filling their trolleys with plastic bits and pieces and taking them home to wrap them up. And then I thought, well, we've now got to wrap them up. We've got to get the tree up. We've got to get the, you know, all the things done. And then I also thought, well, I'm so thankful that I'm actually going to be away this Christmas. So most of this is nothing to do with me. I don't have to worry about food. I don't have to worry about um, making sure everything's all right. I can just turn up, join myself, and then, well, that won't be the case, but you know what I mean. But how do you and get, get yourself ready for Christmas? Is it all the things about Christmas? Is it all the, the trappings and all of the glitzy stuff? Or is it actually internal? Is it something to do with your attitude, your heart, what you're thinking about through the Christmas uh, weeks and days? Or is it just, you know, it's all about the kids, isn't it, really? Well, no, it's not. It's about how we approach God. And I want us to look at three, three questions about Christmas this evening. And the first question is going to be, when? The Bible gives us a very clear picture of when, when it comes to Christmas. And it's in Galatians chapter 4. The when is just when the time was right. When the moment was just right, God sent his son. And that made me think, when I was looking at that, I thought, what does it mean that the time was right? I don't know whether you have any ideas about what God is talking about there, the time being the right time. I mean, are we talking about it was the 25th of December, so that's what was going to be it definitely not going to be that but um, what is it that that God was saying to us is saying to us when he says the time was right in the fullness of time that fullness meaning so it's ripe it is perfect it is now well there are certain things that were going on in the world at the time that Jesus was incarnated or he was born because of the Roman occupation, this is the, probably the first point, because of the Roman occupation, there was a great hunger beginning to, to, to rise up within the Jewish people for a Messiah. They were really, really on the edge of their seats expecting the Messiah to come, just around about this time of, of, of their history. They'd been under this um, quite dominating rule for a while now, and they were kicking against it, and they were really looking now for somebody to fulfill the prophecies of, of the Old Testament and become their Messiah and lead them out from underneath this oppression. But the Roman authorities, the Roman dominance of, of the country, wasn't just a sort of like a, a heavy hand upon them, but it had brought with it a, a peace, a, a Pax Romana, so a sense of openness um, to all of its conquered Countries and it had conquered most of the known world around the Mediterranean 
coastline, really. Um, and there, were, there was a sense of unity, a togetherness. Uh, you could go from one place to another and there would be a familiarity to what was being expected and what was being done, the way things were built and laid out in the towns and so on. There was this continuity around. Travel was possible. It was relatively peaceful. And it allowed news to spread quickly and easily, which wasn't the case before. So, so there was this anticipation and this sort of freedom, this juxtaposition of freedom that doesn't, doesn't really doesn't make much sense in our minds when we think about the two together, sort of oppression and freedom. But there it was. And a third thing was that there was a cultural continuity as well. Although the military power was Rome, the cultural power was Greece. And there was a common language. There was a, an ease of communication. There was a trade language, which was used by everybody. Um, and then there was the... Um, the ability then to use that trade language. I said the ability to, for the news to carry through the Roman peace, but then there was the ability for the, the news to be communicated through the common language. Uh, so it was, it was fairly, it was key to the time. We'll come back to that in a minute. But then, contra to that, again, another juxtaposition, Rome and Greece brought with them Idols, false worship. And it became really apparent during this period of history that these idols were just worthless. They weren't doing the job that everybody had set them up to do. And so there was this discontent with the worship of the day. There's this discontent of the falseness, but also the extremes of cultured living that was really uh, affecting the moral of the people. And it left people of the day spiritually empty. There was something missing. So you had a peace, you had a freedom of movement, you had a freedom of communication or continuity of communication, and this discontentment. And into this mix, I mean, there's, there's lots going on, which is why I think when God says the time was right, these are all in the mixing pot. There were, at that time, things called mystery religions. And they emphasized a saviour God who demanded human sacrifices or bloody sacrifices. And that was a pervading concept around. And can you just think for the moment that God has in the back of his, not in the back of his mind, but he has in his plan a sacrifice one sacrifice to end all and his overriding um, idea and concept is religion, mystery religions are demanding this sort of sense of continuous and fruitless sacrifice and then uh, also because of the militaristic nature of the, of the Rome occupation a lot of the early converts were, would have been soldiers. We know that Paul um, spoke a lot to his captors, 
um, people who were chained to him and the gospel was spread and he, re- he refers to the household of faith in Rome. Um, so there was that sense of, that the, the coming and going of the um, centurions, for want of a better word, made that sort of, it wasn't just trade, it wasn't just standard moving about, but people being reposted somewhere else, halfway around the world, it would seem, would be taking their news with them, they're taking what happened with them, that this event took place. So that was then. A lot of things had come together, a lot of things had um, joined up at a certain period of time that it seems that time was right for Christ to come. And the implications of that are obvious to us, aren't they? The ability to talk about Christ, the ability to talk about the end of sacrifice, all sorts of things raise themselves from that circumstance. But I just want to pause for a moment and think, how can we twist that or turn that and think about ourselves? Is, and ask the question, I suppose, is the time right for us as individuals? So let's, let's look at that first one I mentioned, that sense of anticipation and hunger for something to happen. How many of us have found that our lives are becoming routine? They're becoming empty? They're becoming, we're just going through the motions and there's no real substance, there's a whole that we were thinking about this morning the time was right to fill that hole we have a freedom which has not it may be being eroded at the moment but it's it's a freedom that we enjoy we're gathering tonight um, no one has harassed us from coming here we haven't had to lower the lights we haven't had to go out into the hills to gather um, we are free to worship and there's that, that Roman freedom, that's Pax Romana, um, or peace of Rome. We have a freedom, but we have a freedom to express ourselves. We have a freedom to do what we want, or do we? See, the freedom of expression is damaging. If I'm free to express what I think, regardless of what you think, I could be doing a lot of harm with my words. If you're free to do what you want, regardless of what I want you to do, you could easily injure me, cause me pain. So this freedom is, it's like a, a, um, it's, it's a curse in disguise, not a blessing in disguise. We need something outside of ourselves to draw the perimeters so that we know that there is the line we don't cross. We're safe this side of that line. If we cross it, there's going to be issues, difficulties, troubles. So we need something that is an authority outside of ourselves. And this freedom that was enjoyed in the days of Christ's incarnation can reflect in a certain respect our freedom to do what we want, which really isn't freedom at all. It's actually quite damaging it could be fatal there's uh, I noticed online the other day something from the Christian Institute I didn't really read it because I wasn't fully aware of the background and I thought just to touch on it shadowly would be doing me no good but apparently allegedly my understanding 
there's a move to make abortion, believe it or not, a human right. That's offensive. It's atrocious. But that's freedom, isn't it? It's an expression of a woman's freedom. It's fatal. If you take all the constraints off, things will explode. goes without saying. Because then there was this reliance on the culture and a false worship that was proving itself to be empty. We're living in a society where we are bombarded with concepts that say, this is what is most important in our lives. A famous phrase in certain adverts is, ladies, you're worth it. It's all about you. This this, um, false raising up of something to adore beyond and above everything else. And of course in the days, people were finding that the religions of the day were empty. And we can live in our society now provides us with emptiness and we need something more. Like I could go on, and I'm conscious of the time, but those are human things that seem to suggest the time was right. Now, I don't know what your grasp of Old Testament prophecy is like, but if you were to, say, look at the book of Daniel... Daniel has some very interesting phrases to use. And he talks about sevens and seventy-sevens and so on and so forth in in his writings. And it has been calculated that from the day of his writing, that was like 490 years before Christ was born. I don't know what you think about numbers in the Bible, Seven is quite a a common number to appear. It's been proposed that the 77s that are being spoken of are years, 70 groups of seven years. It's 490 years. It's 490 years between when Daniel spoke and when Jesus came. And it has been calculated by some that actually the precision of Daniel's prophecy is pretty much to the day that Jesus was born. Now, I haven't got all the facts and figures in front of me, and I don't propose that is the solution to why the time was right. But what it does lead me to think is, God fulfills his prophecies. And the Bible is heaving with prophecies concerning his son. Here's a few that I'm just going to give to you. Okay. A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. That was from Numbers chapter 24, Isaiah chapter 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9. A, t- a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. We will refer to this this morning Micah thou Bethlehem Ephrata though you're the smallest amongst many in in Judah out of you shall come forth the ruler of Israel Micah chapter 5 
We know from the account of the gospel writers convinced concerning Jesus' birth and surrounding them that there was a great slaughter of the innocents, it's called. Jeremiah 31 speaks of the uh, voice in Rama lamenting, weeping, great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. And then later in Christ's early days, he was exiled into Egypt and then after a while the family returned um, and Hosea says, out of Egypt I have called my son. Now those are just a, a handful of prophecies. I didn't reread the um, Daniel one. The timing is right in the world and the timing is right in God's plans. Just pause. Is the time right for you? What are you waiting for? What are you looking for? What are you hoping in? At Christmas time this year, perhaps we can find answers to those questions. That in him, we will find those things we're looking for. In him, we will find those things that we've been hoping for. In him, we'll be finding those things that we're waiting for. Well, the second question that we can ask from Scripture, having determined when, we can look at who. And our, our Bible readings this evening address who it was who came at the right time in God's plans as he moved amongst the people of the nations, providing the precise and perfect moment for his son to be incarnated. Who is this? Well, I've already mentioned that God fulfills his promises. And in Hebrews chapter 1, we read a lot of who this promised one is. Who is it who came when the time was right? Well, we realise, if we just move on, on to the, the next one, someone superior to the angels. Hebrews, if you look at the context, the writer there is saying, I want to effectively address the idea that this Christ or these spiritual beings are the same. No, Christ is far superior to the Spirit. And I just wonder, I wonder if you've got this idea in your mind that when Christ was born, he was the baby in a manger, he grew up just like we do. He was reliant on his mum for, um, for his food and he was reliant on his dad for bringing him up as a toddler. And then he was reliant on all sorts of things like children are reliant upon parents for. And then he went around the world, <coughs> the Israeli, Israeli world, preaching and teaching and doing marvellous things. And then, as some would hold, when he went to the cross, the spirit came upon, he became something different. It changed. And the one who died was not really the son of God. The one who died was just the person, the boy, the man. 
Do you have in your minds this twisted concept that the Son of God is different from the Son of Man? God sending his Son is not Jesus. Somehow we've got that sort of broken relationship. And it will impact our understanding of what Christmas is all about. If we only ever look at the, the, the manger and think, there's the little boy. And we don't look at the manger and think, there is the one that God spoke of. Then our worship is off. And Hebrews 1, just verse after verse after verse after verse, just hits us again and again with who this Jesus is someone who is superior to angels. He's not an archangel. He's not a heavenly spirit. He is, if you look in verse 5 of that reading of Hebrews chapter 1, he is the son of God. He's Emmanuel. He is God with us. So let me just, I'm just getting there eventually. To which of the angels did God ever say in verse 5, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That phrase of begotten, we have it in a, a hymn we often sing, begotten, not created. That's a very important word. It means the son of, you know, that offspring. It's not a, Christ is not a created being. He's not like you and I in that sense. He is a direct descendant from God. He is far superior. Even the angels are created beings. He made the angels too. In verse 6, he is the object of angelic worship. Let all angels worship him. That's not a a sense, the writer isn't saying, "Let, let Let's let them do it, you know, let them get on with it. An allowance, so to speak. This is a command. All angels worship him because he is superior to them. He is better than them. This is the babe in the manger. This is the one when, um, if you were in Suffolk, you might hear the phrase concerning the angels singing fit to bust when they appeared to the shepherds. They were effervescent in their praise of God for the incarnation. They couldn't hold themselves. Almost the, the, the elements were torn apart at that moment as heaven broke through to praise the incarnate Son of God. And this command tells us that not only should the angels worship him, So should we, because we are far less than the angels. Verses 8 and 9 say that he is the eternal king. He's righteous. He's pure. He's glad. He's exalted. I've written down here, he's the happy monarch. He's the king of all kings, but he is glad. With the oil of gladness, you have been anointed beyond your companions. In verse 9. This Jesus, 
who revealed his love to you when you became a Christian, his forgiveness when you were saved, who welcomed you with open arms as, we, as you came back to him, who represents us in the Father's court as a sort of a legal representative. This Jesus of all those years ago is that glad Jesus for you. He has been anointed to be glad with you. He's eternal. The same one who had that loving, forgiving heart to you. I don't know how many years or weeks ago it was. Is the same Jesus now in your refusal to acknowledge him. In your times of, of sin and failure. He is the same forgiving Jesus. He is the creator, verse 10. And in this verse particularly, um, the word Yahweh is used as addressed to the Son. Um, so it's referring to God, son, the Son as being God, the, the Father. He is that exact representation which we have read of him. Verse 11, he's eternal, he's without end, he's durable, he won't fade away, he doesn't change, he doesn't become old, he doesn't need to be replaced. He is our perfect guarantee, thanks to him being eternal. Verse 12, he's the one who renews everything. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Um, that is the works of his hands created order like a garment they will be changed they will be renewed they won't be patched up they'll be made brand new but you are the same and your years have no end verse 12 and speeding along a bit in verse 13 he is sat at the father's right hand it's got to be one of my favourite concepts concerning Christ when I think of the Old Testament and all of the times when year on year on year, the, great, the high priest would go in, he'd have his long robes on, there would be bells on the bottom of his um, outfit, and people would be listening, listening to hear that he's still moving around. Because if he had not fully represented the sins of the people in atonement, then he would have been snuffed out for daring to come into the presence of the Most High God in the Holy of Holies. So you've got this thing of the pomegranates and the bells on the bottom of his, his skirt, as it were. Well, those are the bells that you would listen for. And he would be forever moving. He would get in there, do what he needs to do and get out again. Awesome God he'd come into the presence of. A rightfully fearful place. But not Jesus. He goes into the presence of God and he sits down. Now some might say that's arrogance. I don't think so. That's assuredness of who he is and what he's done and his relationship with the Father. But also the Father says, come, sit down. Full acceptance as he represents us. Can you imagine that this Christmas time? As you look at the babe in the manger, as you sing the carols, that you have somebody who has been invited to sit next to God to represent you. Amazing God. What an amazing Christ. 
Let me go back to an early question. When you look at the baby in the manger, do you see the baby that will become the Christ, the Messiah? Or do you see the baby who already is the Christ, the Messiah? The one prophesied from of old. Well, we'll speed along a bit more and we'll think about the third question. So we've thought of when the time was exactly right. Who? This wonderful one that God sent. Why? Why did he come? And for this, we're going to go back to Galatians chapter 4. There are bits in Hebrews that um, answer the question, and I encourage you to have a look at them as well. But I just want to finish off with by returning to Galatians chapter 4. Why did Jesus come? Well, there is a phrase that sort of comes out at the end uh, that says, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And I suppose that's the solution, that's the answer to the question, that Christ came, sent by God, just when it was right, so that you could say, Abba, Father. But there's more to it than that. That verse is not out of context. It has a context to it. So let's just have a a look at a few of the things that are said in in this this verse. And firstly, we realise that God sent his son. We looked at that um, earlier on, that God determined from before the foundations of the world, before time, the first tick of any clock, the first moment that his son would come. He looked forward. No, let me re-say that because I don't think that's entirely true. I wasn't going to say he looked forward and saw what was going to happen, but he knows what's going to happen. He didn't see what was going to happen and then react to it. He determined that you and I would one day walk in the cool of the evening of Eden with him side by side. Because that's what Adam and Eve did. They walked in the cool of the evening side by side. We will no longer be hiding in the hedgerows, hoping he passes us by. That's a predetermined act that God has done. He wants us to walk side by side with him. How does he do that? He wants us to walk like children next to their very dear father. How does he do that? He sends his son. He sends his son who was born as a person. He knows our weaknesses. He knows what it's like to be us. He knows what it's like to have to bite your tongue. He knows what it's like to have to quell your anger. He knows what it's like to... Fill in the dots. Because he is well acquainted with our sins. And yet himself was sinless. This one sent in the fullness of time came as a person born under the law. Not someone who exists outside of the law that had nothing to do with him. He was born under the law and lived a life that completely fulfilled the requirements of that law what did that life look like that fullness that sort of complete fulfillment of God's expectations 
Was it loving? Yes, it was, wasn't it? It was fully loving. Was it forgiving? Of course it was. We can look at the cross and see forgiveness. We can see the profound expression of forgiveness. Was it angry? When Jesus was in the temple, he looked around and he saw the traders. And he said, amongst other things, you have made my house a place of sin. He looked at the profiteering religious people. And he didn't say, oh, I forgive you. Move on. He made himself a whip and he turned the tables over and he drove them out. That righteous anger. We can live our Christian life so weak and wishy-washy that we never stand up against wrongdoing. We never stand up against injustice. We never stand up against deep-rooted sin. We never stand up against idolatry. All those things that Christ stood up against. So be very careful this Christmas that it's all very nice and it's cosy and there are twinkling lights and there's lovely warm colours. But this babe lived a perfect righteous life, including that challenging wrongdoing. So he was born under the law. He fulfilled it in all its aspects to redeem those, us who are under the law, who are struggling to fulfill it, who can't fulfill it. He bought us back. That's why he came. He bought us back at great price, the price of his own life, his blood, so that, we'll see in a minute, but he nevertheless looked at you and me and said, buying that one back. This is one whose name is back in heaven, name is in the book. He redeemed those who were under the law so that we might become children of God. We might be brought into his Family, We might be separated out from the rest of the world and put to one side as his children. We might be adopted. The Bible says as, as sons, but as children of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. We're not co-equal. He is the begotten. We are the created. But he, we are co-heirs with Christ. We have all the rights of being a heavenly citizen. We have all the rights of being children of the most high God. What does that mean? We can approach him, we can talk to him. We don't have to go through an interpreter, although we do because of the spirit and our inability to fully express our worship of him. We don't have to write a letter and ask to be in, uh, allowed into his presence. I, am, I don't know whether you children have ever had to write to your mum and dad and say, Mum, Dad, can we just sit down and have a talk? I'd like to ask you a question. Give them the letter and they go, oh, I'm not sure. You just go up, don't you? You just go up to your mum or your dad and you say this, that or the other. Well, that's what it's like to be a child of Christ. You can go to your father well, he's been giving, he's right, he has given us his spirit 
as his children. A seal of redemption, that guarantee, that down payment, that comforter, that one who stands beside us, or in uh, battle terms, that uh, paraclete, the one who fights at our back, the enemy we can't see as well. He is the one who enables us to be conformed to the image of Christ. We are the one, we are enabled to love his other members of the family, wherever they are in the world, whoever they are, whatever their background is. We have the right to dwell in the new Eden, the new paradise. These are rights given to us because we've been adopted as sons. Now, because of all of that, because we are children of God, we can cry out, Abba, Father. So when the time was right, when you were just ready for the plucking, as it were, when the moment was right in your life, when the moment was right in the world, Christ came into your life, redeemed you, brought you back. This great high one that is above all the angels, exalted above everything, came so that you, as a redeemed people, we as a redeemed people, could cry out, not dear daddy, which some would say this means, but that deep heartfelt, almost unable to utter joy and love and relationship to a heavenly father. It's an inarticulate cry, is what's behind the words here that we could call him Abba, Father. We're no longer strangers. We're no longer enemies. We're no longer outcasts. We're no longer rejects. We're no longer isolated. We're no longer lonely. We're no longer unloved, unwanted, uncared for. We can cry out, Abba, Father. Your experience of fatherhood may be something very different from the one the Bible portrays here. You may have had a very bad relationship with your dad. You may not even know who your dad is. I don't know. But we know that the Heavenly Father is not like that. We know our Heavenly Father sent his only begotten Son. Such love, such grace, such compassion. So when did Christ come? When it was right. Exactly the right time. Not a moment too soon, not a moment too late. Who was it who came? The exalted one of heaven. Why? So that you and I could cry out, Abba, Father. Amen.